So I'm like a really big fan of coffee. I like coffee like a whole lot. My friends call me a coffee snob. I prefer coffee enthusiasts, but semantics. I've liked coffee for a long time, but about four or five years ago, I went through what you would call an intense coffee metamorphosis. See, I was a Starbucks guy prior to this. Huge fan of Starbucks lattes. I would drink the man card thieving pumpkin spice or gingerbread, you know, with like the fancy chocolate shavings or the, you know, the sugar on top. But here was the problem with all of that mess is that it is really, really expensive. Really expensive. Like the medium is like five bucks or grande, whatever the fancy name is. It's, it's, uh, it, it's like if you drink one of those every day, I mean, you're racking up, you're racking up bills and uh, it's not good for you. It's not the way coffee should be made, but I, that's how I liked it. That's, that's the only way I thought I could drink it. But one day, it was a February actually, about five years ago, a friend of mine bought me a Chemex. His name's David McGovern and David, you deserve all of the credit for this change in my life. And uh, he handed me the box of the Chemex inside. If you don't know what it is, you can Google it later. But it looks like a mad scientist beaker that you use to make pour-over coffee. And he said the best way to drink your coffee is black. No cream, no sugar, and for sure, bro, no more of those sauces. No more of that fancy stuff. He said, because there's tasting notes in coffee and there's a complexity to coffee that you miss when you mask what it really is with all kinds of other stuff like milk and sugar. And I was like, dude, there's no way, no way I'm ever going to be able to do this. Number one, I don't just drink it with milk and sugar. I got to top it with whipped cream. I have extra mocha sauce and there is no way that I'm going to be able to drink coffee like this. I'm just... I don't know, maybe I'm not enough of a man, but uh, there's no way I can do it. And he goes, six weeks. I was like, what? He's like, drink coffee with no cream, no sugar, nothing added. Make sure the beans are fresh. Make sure they're, you know, they're high quality. But only make coffee in this Chemex and drink it black for six weeks. And in six weeks, you'll change your palate. That's all it will take. And at the end of six weeks, you'll change what you crave, you'll change what you like, and you'll be changed. I took the challenge. I didn't think it was going to work. I was eager to prove him wrong, but I was wrong, and David was right. And I took the six-week challenge, and at the end of six weeks, I was like, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to go to Starbucks. And I got one of the fancy mocha drinks, and I got about a quarter of the way through it, and I felt sick, and I had to throw it out. I didn't like it anymore. David was right. So now I've got a whole bunch of different ways to make coffee at my house, from different pour-over methods to press methods like French press or AeroPress or, you know, Kalita Wave, Clever Dripper, you name it. But no matter which way I like to make my coffee, I only drink it one way. Black. Nothing added to it. And this is just an illustration for what I want to talk to you about today, because I'm not here to give you a commentary on how you should drink your coffee or anything like that. I'm using, you know, this little funny example from my life to share with you a simple truth. And that's how change happens. I want to talk to you today about how you can change your life forever. 
that the things that you've been wanting to do but can't seem to do because you don't feel like you're mentally strong or tough enough to do them or because you just don't want to, I want to talk to you today, give you a truth about how change can happen in your life starting today. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Well, hey, everybody, my name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist, the podcast that asks the big question, how in the world can we live for Jesus in the 21st century, while at the same time embodying the values and the heart, the theology, and the practices of the first century church? That the first century church is the ideal picture and image that all of us need to look to when we strip away the creeds and the traditions that have been built through all of the different historical time periods and we get back to the heart of what Jesus intended his disciples and his church to be, that's what we want to explore. And so today we're talking about change. We're talking about how we can change our lives, how we can change even what we crave, what we love, uh, what we're all about. And because this podcast is so focused on becoming followers of Jesus like the first followers of Jesus were, it makes perfect sense that when we talk about transformation, that we would start with the words of Jesus. There are all sorts of great books, great ideas, great things out there that you can read that have to do with transformation and change. But if you want to be a restorationist, if you want to be an apostolic, you got to start with the plan, the design of the one that that started the church. And so that's Jesus. That's what we want to do. And so we're going to talk about change and how change takes place from the perspective of Jesus. And there's actually a parable that we're going to explore today. It's a very famous one. If you've grown up in church, you went to Sunday school, you know all about this parable. But I think we've been interpreting it wrong forever. And so we're going to revisit it because I think there's some incredible truths in here that will help you change your habits, change your desires, frankly, change your life so you can become the person that you feel God wants you to become. And so the parable that Jesus uses to talk about change and transformation, at least for its purposes today, is a parable about discipleship. It's a parable about the life of a follower of Jesus and what what following Jesus should really look like. And this parable is a comparison of opposites. And so it's two separate stories that are told back to back that describe different ways of living. And it's found in Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 28 are are the verses that encapsulate this story. Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was. When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching." Now, probably like you, if you grew up going to church camps or Sunday school and hearing sermons on this subject, 
here's what I was taught. Jesus is the rock. The sand is the world. Build your life on Jesus and you'll be okay. Everything will be fantastic. But if you don't, the storm will take you out. So build your life on the rock became the rallying cry. And I perpetuated this rather faulty interpretation myself till a couple of years ago. And I started really studying the parables of Jesus. And I came across this amazing book by Klein Snodgrass called Stories with Intent. And it's like his big life's work on the parables of Jesus. And I started really looking at this parable uh, using the different resources, including the Stories with Intent book, and really analyzing what Jesus said, kind of stripping down um, all of the traditions that I had heard and the stories from the flannel graph and just really getting down and looking at what Jesus actually said. And here's what I discovered. This parable is not an allegory. Now, an allegory is a representation of an abstract or spiritual meaning through concrete or material forms, according to the dictionary definition. In other words, it's like the things in the story are symbolic of something else. This parable is not that. It's an analogy. An analogy is simply a comparison between two things. So the next question is, you know, what is Jesus making an analogy to? Well, here's some background. In Jesus's day, uh, houses were built with stone, especially in places where a stone was available. And what they would do is they would build one to two stories uh, of rough masonry and the foundations or the foundations would be cut like just right into rock. And most houses had one level, most, most of the time, two layers of stone at their base. Even if mud brick or straw or other things were used in the upper levels, the first level, the first story or two was made of stone. That's because a lot of these people lived in coastal areas and they were pretty familiar with the dangers of sand because when it would rain and it didn't rain a whole lot, but when it would, it would like pour. Water would be destructive on houses and property, especially if they had poor foundations. And from what I've read and and at least the sources that, that I've been given, Jerusalem and the area would get about 22 inches of rain per year. Now, London, England gets the same amount of rain per year, but they get that amount of rain over 300 days. Jerusalem and area would get that same amount of rain in 50 days. That's a huge concentration. This means that when storms would come, they would be absolutely torrential. Water runoffs on the hills and mountains would rush down with immense speed and, and they would, you know, gather up debris and they would wash away with ferocity anything in their path that wasn't secure and stable. So only a fool, only a dumb person would build a mud hut on the sand in a flood zone because the water would rush underneath It would rip the foundation up from underneath you. It would melt away your bricks and destabilize the entire structure. And the collapse, if people were in the house, would be totally catastrophic. It was incredibly dangerous and foolhardy to build your house on sand. 
So that's the background. But what does the text say? You may be thinking, man, Adam, with that background, for sure, the, you know, the flannel graph is right. But, but what does the text actually say? See, in the verses right before the story, Jesus says, we know people by, their, by the fruits of what they do, that what they do reveals who they are. Now, sidebar, we say all the time, crazy things. Like, they're not a bad person. They just do bad things. Jesus is like, no. The fruit reveals the state of the source. So, in the preceding verses leading up to this parable, Jesus says, you know who people are by what they do. That what they do reveals who they are. And then he says, some people will come to me And they'll say, Lord, Lord, we cast out devils in your name. We did many marvelous works. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. They'll come and they'll claim these big supernatural signs. But because their life does not have the fruits of discipleship, their character and their behavior does not have the fruit of discipleship. Jesus says, you have no part of me. And then Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And then he says in verse 26, Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was was its fall. So let's, let's, let's break this down. Whoever hears my sayings and does them is like a man who built his house on a rock. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a man who built his house on the sand. Here's some points from the parable. Everyone heard the word. One did, the other didn't, and it was the doing that made the difference. Everyone heard it, but one did, the other didn't, and it was the doing that made all of the difference. See, Jesus is setting up a contrast. This is not an allegorical parable. He's not setting up some sort of symbolic meaning that has to be discerned. He's actually giving us a really simple contrast in a very easy to understand story that, that no matter how young you are or how inexperienced you are in religious and spiritual matters, you, you just get it. Those who hear and do are like a person who builds their house on a strong foundation. And those who hear and don't are like a fool with a sandcastle house. You're like, okay, so thanks for the Bible study. What in the world does this have to do with me wanting to change my habits, me wanting to change my life, change my desires, and actually start my life on the path of the person that I need to become in order to please and honor God? Well, remember my coffee story. If you, despite your mind's protest, will make behavioral changes, your desires will soon follow. What your mind and your emotions initially protested as a good idea will soon become something your mind longs 
to do. I thought there was no way I would ever be able to drink coffee other than the way they made it in the fancy drinks at Starbucks, but I just took the challenge. And the first few days were hard. I didn't like it. In fact, the first week was horrible. But I stuck with it. And eventually, my desires and my mind followed my actions. See, your behaviors in your environment, they shape your thoughts. And your thoughts shape the direction of your life. And it's not the other way around. You know, when I was a little kid, my dad had this, this saying he would always say to me. He was like, listen to me when I'm talking to you. Now, what he, he, he didn't mean was like unplug your ears, allow you know, the sound waves coming from my mouth to go into your ear canal. He wasn't using the word literally. He was, he was saying, respond to what I'm saying in a way that conforms to what I'm telling you to do. In the Bible, hearing and obeying in Hebrew is the same word. There's no thinking-doing divide in the world of the Bible. Hearing, believing equals doing. Hearing and believing equals doing. And if there is no doing, then you did not hear and you clearly do not believe. James says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. This is why the Bible talks so much about submission, crucifying your flesh. You know, there's 10 commandments. Those 10 commandments are actually 10 behaviors. Every belief in scripture has a behavior attached to it. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then it says, talk about this one God when you're in the way, when you get up, when you're with your children, and when you go to bed at night. Because if you want to serve and love and follow God with all of your heart, your mind, your will, and your strength, you need to build your life around behaviors that fan the flames of that desire. I guess here's what I'm driving at. We trust our minds way more than we should. We put too much stock into how we feel. See, a restorationist approach to life says that in this flesh dwells no good thing. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all else who can know it. That there is a darkness and dysfunction to all of us that is so messed up that we truly do not comprehend ourselves. A restorationist approach to change says, I don't and I shouldn't trust my feelings very much because there is a part of me that still doesn't like God that wants to be my own boss, that wants to do what I want to do when I want to do it. It's a life not just of right now, but right, right now, the total fleeting moment. So we can't rely on what we, air quotes, want to do or feel like doing if we want to change. We simply have to act on principle. A life of following Jesus is a life of action. 
It's the doing that makes the difference. So if the doing is what makes the difference, then we have to remove ourselves from the environments that make building our life and acting on life out of our fleeting feelings and emotions possible. We got to remove ourselves from the environments that make living life completely impulsively and on what our default carnal human desires are possible. We got we got to we got to stop and get ourselves out of those environments. I've been a pastor or involved in pastoral ministry since I've been 19. I'm 34 now. And uh, when people come to me and they start saying, I'm not sure if I want to live for God, I'm not sure if I want to come to church, I start asking some questions that sometimes people don't, don't really like, that feel somewhat confrontational. And I don't enjoy conflict. I, I don't like making people feel bad. Uh, that's not my MO but at all. But here's the questions I ask. When's the last time that you prayed that wasn't at church? Do you read your Bible? Who's influencing you? Tell me who are the friends that you have spent the most time with in the past six weeks? What behaviors are you engaging in? What are you doing with your time? Walk me through your schedule. Because I've never pastored someone consumed with their career or things or status or money who is at the same time spiritually healthy. I've never pastored someone who was completely ruled by their emotions who was at the same time spiritually healthy because our emotions are always changing. Our emotional life is up and down. Have you ever been hangry, like so hungry you're angry? All you needed was a Snickers, as the commercials say. You weren't you because you were hungry, according to Snickers, that is. And, and all that was was you just needed a snack. But you were ready to like be grumpy or you were moody or you were super emotional because you needed a snack. And so if a snack can change the way you feel, my goodness, our emotions are all over the place. They're, they're up and they're down. Listen, I'm not saying we deny not I'm not saying we deny our emotional world or anything like that, but we have to assign it its rightful place. We have to become more aware of our feelings and the power they attempt to exert over us. The problem is not that you feel. People are like, I can't help how I feel. I can't help how I feel. This, this is honestly how I'm feeling right now. I don't deny that. The problem is not that you feel, but that you give weight to those feelings as opposed to weight to actions and behaviors that are built on principles. The problem is not that you feel, but that you make crucial decisions based on the weight you assign to whatever dominant emotion is ruling your heart at the moment. So you got to get yourself out of the environments that cause you to live impulsively upon momentary and fleeting desires and emotions. And you need to put yourself in an environment where you are able to to live a life of obedience and action where you can obey the Word of God, you can obey the Holy Spirit, and you can do the things that drive your life forward. Let's talk about relationships for a moment, and I know I, I may have a young adult audience here. You know, the Scripture says, 
Be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Don't compromise the person you should be with because they'll complete you and fulfill you and help you fulfill your mission by being with someone you shouldn't be with because you feel lonely right now. Don't compromise your values and beliefs and your future in a moment of pressure or a moment of passion. Choose obedience instead. Whenever we get anxious and fearful and impulsive in our romantic relationships, we set ourselves up for compromise and future heartbreak. I mean, take a look at Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, tons of wounds because they got impatient and they let their life be ruled by these big dominant emotions that that are real, like fear and loneliness and a desire to control. This means if we're going to obey God and reject fleeting temporary emotions and put ourselves in an environment where obedience and action, good action is possible, it means we resist and overcome our sexual desires when they cause us to seek to fulfill those desires outside of what God says is moral and right. And the way we do that is not through getting rid of our sexual desires. The way we do that is by refusing to be in environments where acting on our sexual desires in a compromising or ungodly way is possible. We are living in a culture where satisfying our sexual desires is like the ultimate good, which is why there is such hostility towards the church and Christianity about sexual morality right now. Because the world thinks that If being sexually satisfied is the greatest good, then to deny someone that good is to deny the ultimate expression of themselves, and that's to deny their humanity. But a restorationist that is following Jesus says that God's good for my life is that I be his disciple. Not that I act upon whatever I want right now in the moment, but that I follow Jesus And I am committed to a pursuit of living holy as he is holy. Because holiness and Christ-likeness and obedience is my ultimate good, not pleasure. So what this parable teaches me is that if I truly believe in God and that his plan for me is good, I will just do what he says and trust him by obeying him and living out his principles in my life, regardless of what I feel, that I will make all effort to talk back to the thoughts and the emotions that are screaming in my head, trying to pull me in a direction that's not right. Like my coffee illustration proved to me that I can change my palate. You can change the direction of your life by choosing the right behaviors. That's how change happens, according to Jesus. It's the doing that makes the difference. So what is it that you want to change? What is it in your life that you're not satisfied with right now? What's the area of your life that if if you could make a, if you could make a positive change in, like, it, it would be transformative? Is it your spiritual disciplines? Is it, your devotion to God, 
Is it that your emotions are so turbulent that when crisis happens, you can't help but melt down? That you don't have the ability to rein in your mouth or your words when you get anxious and afraid and you just start like lashing out or venting? And, it, and it, you know it's hurting your influence. You know that these outbursts are causing people to not trust you if you are a leader, that, that when stressful moments happen, you just melt down in front of a group of people that you know, you know that erodes your public image and that eroding of a public image has a pragmatic effect on your ability to lead those people in the right direction. But you just, ah, you just can't get away. What, what is the thing that you need to change? Is it a discipline in your life? Is it some thought patterns? that drive you to particular actions? What is it that you're trying to change? What is the one thing that would make the greatest difference in your life now if it was, if it was different? No matter what it is, the principle is the same. You change the direction of your life not by working on your mind first, but by working on your actions first. This is not to, to puff myself up or brag, but, but I'm in the greatest season of spiritual discipline in my life that I have I've ever, I've never felt this close to God. I've never had this great of a prayer life. I've never been in the Word so much. What was the difference? I decided I was just going to get up really early in the morning because that was the only time in my crazy life that I could actually pray. Here's the thing. I didn't want to get up early. It's hard to get up really early in the morning, especially when your life is hectic. But I made up my mind that I was not going to care about how I felt, but I was going to care about my behaviors. The first time that I got up super early in the morning when everyone else was asleep, did I feel super close to God? No, I was miserable. I was fighting sleep the whole time. I was trying to pray and, and read my Bible. But I kept doing it. Kept getting up, kept getting up, kept getting up, kept getting up. And soon I was waking up before my alarm. And soon my devotional life exploded with meaning. Soon the presence of God was invading my living room in just this powerful way as I, as I sought his face and I started to see God move and do great things. I didn't work on my mind. I worked on my actions. And when I worked on my actions, my mind and my desires, the palate of my emotions and soul soon followed. And here's what Jesus says, doing makes the difference because the storm is coming. In both of these analogous stories, these parables here, the storm hit all of them. The one who heard and obeyed the words of Jesus, he went through the same storm that the one who heard and didn't do. Obedience doesn't put your life in this magical bubble where there is no pain, there is no stress, there is no issues. Human life is human life, and sometimes it stinks. Sometimes we're going to experience trauma and loss and grief and death and sickness and 
there will be trials that are a part of the human experience that we're not magically exempt from just because we follow Jesus and we obey him. There are storms that come upon us all. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, and so does the drought. So what is the storm that Jesus is talking about? Well, I've already inferred one particular type of storm, the storms of life. In this life, we're going to have trouble. It could be the storms of testing by God. Sometimes trial doesn't come through the human experience. It comes through the hand of God. Look at Job. Where God wants to test what you're made of. But it also could be something much more cosmic according to Jesus. The storm could not just be the storms of life. It could not just be the testing of God, but it is the cosmic judgment of the whole world. It could be referring to the final judgment because verses 15 through 20, the ones who did not bear fruit are thrown into fire. In verses 21 and 23, before we get to this story, Jesus says, depart from me, I don't know you. There is separation from God. See, this parable is urgently calling people who follow Jesus to obey and do his teachings. This, this parable follows the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus kind of gives his manifesto of the life of someone who is his disciple. He is stressing that security comes from obedience. Now, I'm not talking about earning your salvation through works. We know we're saved by the blood of Jesus, the grace of God. But the security and safety of our ongoing walk with God stems from obedience, that doing the word builds a life that is protected from the cosmic reckoning that God is bringing the universe and on sin. While we are saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, continued living in that grace and the power of the Holy Spirit is impossible without submission and obedience. Your actions drive your thoughts. Your thoughts drive your actions. And if you're constantly putting yourself in an environment where doing the things that will bring the greatest change in your soul, in your mind, in your mission are not possible, then don't be surprised if your spirituality and life direction matches those associations and environments. Came across the story. You've probably heard it. It went viral. It's, 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 um, it's I think, 2014, 2015 it came out. It's, it says, in December 2013, Pastor Ryan Bell wrote a blog post that went viral in which he announced that he would be undertaking a year without God. Here's what he said. I'm making it official and embarking on a new journey. For the next 12 months, I will live as if there is no God. I will not pray. I will not read the Bible for inspiration. I will not refer to God as the cause of things or hope that God may intervene and change my own or someone else's circumstance. He said, look, I trust that that if there really is a God, that God is not going to be perplexed, off-put by my foolish little experiment and allow others to suffer as a result. I mean, come on. I'm just, I'm just going to live as if there's no God. I'm not saying there is no God. I'm not saying I'm an atheist, but I, I'm, just, 
I'm going to undergo an experiment. And look, God is so big. He's so gracious. He's so awesome that, I mean, hey, you know, my life's not going to be affected that much by what I do, right? Bell pledged to read atheist texts to visit gatherings of non-believers. In short, he said, I will do everything I can to enter into the world of atheism and live for a year as an atheist. It's important, he said, and I'm quoting right now, to make the distinction that I am not an atheist. That's part of what this year is all about. Well, at the end of the year, guess who he no longer believed in? When that little experiment, when, you know, it rolled over to 2014, guess what Pastor Bell no longer believed in anymore? And if you said God, you'd be 100% correct. That's because your behaviors drive your mind. Your actions drive your thoughts. We are not as rational as we think we are. I wish, I wish it was different. I wish I could will myself to desire things just through thoughts. But that's not how it works. It's not, it's not how I'm wired. It's not how any human being is wired. And Pastor Bell became an atheist at the end of the year simply because he lived as one. He, he didn't set out to leave his church. He didn't set out to say, I no longer will embrace the idea that a theistic God made the world and then graciously saved us all through the shedding of his own blood so that we could be saved. He never said, I'm going to walk away from all of that, what I've dedicated my life to. He never said that. He never said, I actually know. He just said, I'm going to, I'm going to try this on for size. And I, I mean, God's, God's not so small to be flummoxed, he said, by my actions. And God wasn't. But he was, because we're not as rational and logical as we think we are. Even those of us that are the more rational thinking personality type put our feelings on the back burner. But here's the thing with the back burner. If you don't address what's on the back burner, eventually it'll burn and it'll start a fire because we're not as rational as we think we are. This is why James said, put your faith to work. Put your faith to work. So back to what I said before, you know, imagine the things that you would like to want to do. Imagine the disciplines you wished were in your life. Imagine the desires you wished you had about the greatest things that would propel your life in the direction of God and the direction of change, the change that you want to live and you want to experience. So imagine with me if what if we did the opposite of, of Pastor Bell? What if instead of living like Pastor Bell, we lived and behaved like we were totally consumed with Jesus? What if you lived and behaved exactly like the person you feel that God wants you to become? I'm not asking you to feel it. I'm not asking you to want to be this way. I'm not asking for your emotions to be in lockstep. I'm asking for you just to do it. Even if you feel like you're going through the motions sometimes. 
So for those of, of, of you that may struggle with spiritual disciplines and, and spiritual life, what if you just started getting up every day at 6 or 5 a.m. to pray, no matter what? What if those of you that are going through a really hard time where God feels like he's a thousand miles away and maybe you've experienced grief or loss and, and a relationship has fallen apart or uh, you feel like you're stuck in a, a stage of your life and, and in your heart, you're, you're questioning God. You have all of these doubts that swirl your mind. What if instead of coming into church a few minutes late, if, if that's where you're at right now, you slipped in early and you didn't go into the back pew, but you sat on the front row and you worshiped and you poured out your heart to God and you prayed and you sang as if you were somebody completely consumed with Jesus, even though in your heart you don't feel that way. What, what, if, what if if you're a turbulent leader and you know that, that, that you need to be more stable with people? What if when those emotions start to rise, you acted in accordance not to what you felt, but according to what you knew was right? And you practice discipline with your words. And it'll be hard. And you won't get it right. This, is, this isn't about like you're going to be perfect all of the time. Sometimes you're going to royally drop the ball. But what if you acted like the person that you wanted to become, even though you don't feel like it, and you feel kind of like a fake when you're doing it? What if you just did that anyway? What if we believed and lived full of faith, even though we're fighting doubt? What if you believe that God wanted to move supernaturally in your life every single day, though you are in a season where you feel completely alone? And what if you made day-to-day -day decisions based on what you knew about the character and power of Jesus and not your own character? If you're looking at your life and you're wanting to make true change happen, remember this parable. It is the doing that makes the difference. That's it. It's astonishingly simple, yet painful at the beginning to execute. But here's the thing. If you stay with it, if you stick to it, and you never give up, your life of behavior and action builds this bedrock of stability in your life that no matter what happens, you're going to stand strong. It's the doing that makes the difference. I hope you have a great day.